Hi, I'm George Tekmachev, and this is a special edition of the Easton Target Archery Podcast, looking at Easton's first 100 years. For 100 years, Easton has been a company known for innovation, a company that's always set out to change sports for the better. Materials, technologies, and techniques have always been in their wheelhouse. They've had a burning desire to improve and widen participation and increase accessibility, add value, and enhance human performance in every sport they touch. Those are core values that have always been at the heart of everything Easton has done over the past 90 years. This story is how that iconoclastic ethic of innovation started, where it's taken us, and where it's going. It's the story of Easton's first century. It's also the story of an extraordinary American family and the innovative American company that they built 100 years ago. It was a rainy January morning in central California. A yew tree stood strong and straight, shaded behind a grove of cypress nestled in the hills behind a ranch house. Sixteen hours of hard work later, four carefully stacked piles of select seven-foot wood staves, the most select wood from the 70-year-old tree, were stacked and arranged in a covered breezeway behind the farmhouse. For six months, they'd sit there drying and curing to hit the perfect humidity level for the next step on a long journey, a journey toward becoming a Doug Easton longbow. James Douglas Easton, known as Doug, was born on a crisp September morning in 1907 in Oakland, California. Drawn from an early age to the outdoors, Doug demonstrated a keen intellect, which had also featured an uncommon attention to detail for a youngster, and a sense of perfection-seeking that many found to be a bit uncanny. Doug's father was Frederick George Easton. Fred, as they knew him, was a beneficiary of a large inheritance, lived the life of a gentleman farmer, he was a college graduate with an interest in nature and two ranches in Manteca and in Watsonville, California. Travel and adventure were his interests. For example, one family story recounts how he traveled by horseback from San Francisco to the Canadian border and then back and down to the Mexican border and back again, which obviously is no small feat. The records are a bit scanty, but family memory relates the Eastons emigrated from Scotland to the Bay Area of California just a few years before the California Gold Rush. The Easton brothers who made that journey were named James, who was the father of Fred, Doug's grandfather, and John Easton. They made their fortune as custom cabinet makers. Later, they increased this by refitting ship interiors from cargo to passenger use to accommodate demand for transport to the Yukon for the gold rush taking place there. By all accounts, their work was acclaimed, intricate, and it was certainly in great demand. Evidence of this even exists today. James Easton, grandfather of Doug, was called on to craft the original intricately carved main doors of the original California State Capitol building. Doug himself lived a life of pursuit of adventure, and by all accounts, considerable intellectual pursuit. Unfortunately for Doug, though, some of his father's business decisions, including some poor real estate deals, depleted the family coffers. Combined with the Great Depression, Fred was in such a poor financial state that Doug found himself supporting his father toward the end of Fred's life, and without any safety blanket for himself and his wife during the worst of the American Depression. This was an experience that had a substantial effect on Doug. 
In adulthood, Doug vowed never to let himself or his children act too freely with money as perhaps he'd felt his father had, and he raised his own sons with exactly that ethic. In happier times, as his family spent time in the more rural environs of Watsonville on California's central coast, just a few miles from the beach in Santa Cruz County, the plentiful local game and open tracts of land drew an enthusiastic young Doug afield with his beloved and trusted 20-gauge shotgun. Loaded with number four shot, this was effective medicine for the rabbits and chucks and squirrels that were his quarry. On sunny mid-autumn afternoons, Doug would often pack his shotgun off to school, where it would sit alongside twenty-two caliber bolt guns and other shotguns on the school gun rack. Uh, yeah, they had those then. Ready to go after the plentiful small game in the bushes and the fields on the walk home. But fate intervened and forever changed the destiny of this California boy and created an entire industry. The year was 1921. It was a sunny and pleasant autumn morning of duck hunting on the Santa Cruz coast. 15-year-old Doug Easton was precocious, witty, and highly intelligent, according to the accounts of his contemporaries. Superb athlete, lean and sinewy, with excellent eye-hand coordination, as his impressive snap shooting with a shotgun demonstrated over and over again deadly inside 50 yards on running rabbits, for example. Doug had gone after ducks that day with the intent of getting a few for breakfast, his mother in particular very fond of duck, it seems. But on this morning of duck hunting, skies were empty, so Doug headed home not having connected. Now, Doug was meticulous about gun safety. Normally, he'd be careful to clear the weapon when putting it away. Perhaps he was distracted by something. But for whatever reason, the shotgun was still fully loaded with the safeties off in the back of his Ford Model T as he traveled home. Pulling into the driveway, Doug opened the door and leaned the loaded shotgun on the fender with the barrels pointed toward the sky. When he stepped out of the car, his weight left the springs of the suspension. The shift caused the shotgun to slide off the slick black lacquer of the Model T and hit the stony ground. The impact was just enough to jar the trigger released the hammers, and discharged the brass-based waxed paper one-and-a-quarter-ounce shell that Doug had carefully chambered just a few hours before. The shotgun discharged on impact, and the shot charge rammed into both of Doug's legs as he stepped out of the car. For an instant, Doug felt as if someone had swung a baseball bat into his shins. Not so much pain, not so much as a numbing, stunning shock, which instantly dropped him to his knees. Now, a shotgun charge at close range is devastating. Without much distance to spread out the charge, the full power of the pellets that hit Doug was equal to that of a three fifty seven Magnum handgun at point-blank range. As Doug related it, he didn't feel so much pain as fear in those first moments, with the thought surging into his mind, what if I lost my legs? His parents were home at the time, and the story of how they got Doug to medical help is lost in the mists of time, but it was no doubt the start of a long period of sheer agony, first with a bumpy trip to the hospital, then hours of painful pellet extraction, a horrific set of wounds to dress, one leg hit so hard the bone was easily seen. Skin grafts and more surgery were in store, but after six months, Doug realized he'd grown addicted to the regular doses of morphine that the physicians liberally used to dull the constant pain that he suffered through his convalescence. Through an enormous effort of self-will, he weaned himself off the powerful narcotic. It was a struggle that he later called the hardest thing I ever did. During the long convalescence, his father had gifted him a book on a novel hunting method, 
a method that perhaps was thought to be less risky than shotgunning. Not that Doug ever lost his love of the shooting sports, he was a lifelong firearms enthusiast. But poring over the new book on the novel subject of making and hunting with bows and arrows, the first authoritative book to bring the ancient techniques of the Native Americans to light, Doug learned exacting details on how to make these ancient implements. Putting his imagination and sharp intellect to work in ways that only a bored adolescent can, Doug gingerly left his hospital bed to continue his convalescence at the main family home in Oakland, a home providing the raw materials, the tools, and the workspace for the first efforts at making the bows and arrows that he'd until then only dreamed about after reading an extraordinary book that he received from his father, a book that changed a life and helped create an entire industry. The book was written by Saxton Temple Pope. Pope was born in 1875. He was an American doctor, teacher, author, and outdoorsman. He's also acknowledged as the father of modern bow hunting. He was born an army brat and grew up in military camps and frontier towns in Arizona and Texas, where his father served as an army surgeon. In those places, he learned outdoor skills and became an avid hunter. Graduating from medical school in 1899, he joined the medical facility of UC Berkeley in 1912. Not long after, he commissioned a home by architect William Worcester in Orinda, California. In the Bay Area, Pope was known as a leading medical practitioner and became famous for his close relationship with and documentation of Ishi, the last surviving member of the Yahi or Yana Native American tribe and the last known Native American to have been raised in total isolation from Western culture. Ishii taught Pope the Yahi way of constructing bows and arrows as well as their hunting techniques. Pope took care of Ishii's fragile health. With an immune system tuned to the outdoors rather than the city, the Native American was unusually susceptible to picking up illnesses. Dr. Pope and Ishii remained close friends until Ishii's death in 1916. Pope became an avid bow hunter. In 1920, with special permission, he and his hunting companion, Arthur Young, hunted grizzly bears in the Yellowstone National Park with their handmade bows and steel-tipped arrows, taking several specimens. Later, Pope wrote the book Hunting with a Bow and Arrow, the very book that changed Doug Easton's life. Doug Easton was an athlete and outdoorsman, but above all else, a talented craftsman and natural engineer. With an innate insight and talent for mechanical devices, materials, and woodworking, and an eye for the practical aesthetic, he constantly was thinking about ways to improve the things he worked with. As he reached his 16th birthday, still recovering from his injuries, Doug gathered the tools and materials that he'd need to craft his first hand-honed U-wood bow. After a series of initial attempts to hone his techniques, Doug quickly learned the ins and outs of the intricate task of trimming yew wood perfectly so that the highly elastic outer fibers formed a thin layer on the back of the bow, the side facing the target, perfectly balancing the compression-resistant inner wood of the yew stave. Now, this secret is one that Doug decoded through trial and error and also with the guidance of books by Dr. Pope, containing important tips on working the temperamental material. Finally, Doug was able to achieve his goal of making a fine U longbow. It was the first of many. By late 1922, Doug Easton was largely recovered from his injury and so taken with archery that he'd moved to San Francisco, which had an active archery community. That way he could take part in the sport on a more regular basis. 
Late one afternoon, Doug was shooting his self-made bow and arrows in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. That had a secluded archery ground, which still exists today. A passerby quietly watched as Doug launched arrow after arrow at up to 60 yards, hitting with authority a painted cloth target pinned to the hay bale serving as a backstop. During a break in the shooting, the spectator came up to greet the young Doug and, looking over his self-made tackle, expressed admiration at the design and craftsmanship. The stranger asked Doug, "'Where did you learn to make such fine gear?' Doug's ready reply was, "'From the book by Dr. Pope.' The stranger raised an eyebrow, looked Doug in the eye for a moment, extended his hand, and as he grasped Doug's hand, informed the youngster that he was that very same Dr. Saxton Temple Pope. In another era, Doug would undoubtedly have gone on to higher education, but this was the 1920s, a time with a great deal of economic expansion and leisure time. Archery was just starting to become a popular activity in higher social circles, and word of Doug's bows reached across the state of California and into archery hotbeds like Ohio and New York. However, his bow sales were mostly to fellow club members and close friends, because he didn't have the capital to start a business on his own that could go full-time building bows. The shotgun accident effectively derailed his high school career, and he didn't attend college. Instead, Doug followed his archery dream. By 1925, Doug took a part-time job making bows for the California Byproducts Company. He spent two years doing this before moving to Watsonville. In 1929, at the age of 22, Doug left Watsonville specifically for the better shooting weather of Los Angeles, taking all his belongings on his beloved Indian motorcycle. On his way to L.A., Doug crashed in Ventura in a high windstorm. But a few days later, only a little worse for wear, he finally made it to settle in what is today downtown Los Angeles. 22-year-old Mary Simonich was a bright student at USC when Doug met her in Los Angeles. This charming, beautiful girl from Porter, California, was the second oldest of seven children. She shared Doug's enthusiasm for archery. Later, she worked as a buyer for the Barker Brothers Furniture Company, both of which were skills that she'd put to good use later as Doug began to climb as an independent businessman. In L.A., Doug took on a full-time job, driving deliveries of big rolls of newsprint for the Sierra Zellerbach Paper Company. That constituted the majority of his income until 1933, but all the while, he made archery equipment and shot as many competitions as possible. When Doug arrived in Los Angeles, he quickly found a workspace in a small garage at 4303 Haldale Avenue, a garage shop that served as his test lab and manufacturing facility for nearly five years. During this time, his signature bow elements, such as shaped ergonomic pigskin grips, and reflexed limb tips and other unique bow features began taking shape. But Doug became increasingly frustrated at one factor that was out of his control. That problem was arrows, and in particular, wood arrows. Now, no two pieces of wood are really identical. Grain, density, stiffness, all of these vary, even from two adjacent pieces in the same billet. Now, since us archers only use one bow at a time, this isn't as much of a problem with bows. But in archery, since we shoot groups, consistency of arrows, stiffness, straightness, and weight from shaft to shaft is more than just critical, it's absolutely vital. The frustrating limitations of wood moved Doug to direct his keen intellect to the challenge of improving in this difficult area. 
As an already accomplished woodworker, by 1933 it was obvious to Doug he could work on reducing the inconsistency of wood by using a simple principle that makes plywood stronger and more consistent, laminating. By splicing two pieces of wood together to leverage their properties, Doug made better arrows. He started out with a two-footed laminated design, using a wedge splice joint to connect a hard, dense hardwood front end to a lighter, straight cedar shaft on the rear. Now, this made for better arrow flight and better accuracy. Doug applied the same principle, inventing a radically improved four-footed arrow, which used a main shaft of laminated light mass, very straight Port Orford cedar, and a much more intricately crafted four-wedge splice tip of hard, dense ironwood. Now, this had two key advantages. First, the denser point wood added stability in flight. It also held up a lot better in the target. The four-footed design was also more consistent in stiffness around the arrow shaft, which was a critical feature. The final design touch was Doug's development of a four-footed barreled arrow, an arrow that was bigger in the center and tapered at the ends for more improved arrow departure from the bow and improved flight characteristics. All of the elaborate effort needed to build a matched set of 12 target arrows was unbelievably tremendous. You could build 12 bows faster and more easily than a dozen arrows, and this was reflected in the cost of the arrows, which was very high by the standards of the day. Doug's desire to improve the arrow led to one conclusion. In terms of time, cost, and performance, wood could never satisfy his desire for perfect arrows. So Doug's thoughts turned to one material available that could offer the required consistency. Metal. Now Doug had faced an enormous challenge, one that he imposed on himself. After nearly 20 years of making what had widely become known in the still small fraternity of archers as the finest handcrafted wood longbows and arrows, Doug took on the new challenge of obsoleting his time-tested technology and techniques in favor of something clearly better, but a lot harder. And this would prove to be only the first instance in a long pattern of making decisions like that. Now by this point of time, Companies such as the American Fork and Hoe Company, which later became True Temper, had already produced drawn steel shaft material for the purpose of arrows. But these were very, very thin wall carbon steel shafts. They were heavy, brittle, rust-prone, and frighteningly dangerous when they failed. In 1932, Doug married Mary Sinovich, forging what was to be a lifelong 40-year partnership. He was a man of great personal warmth, who even in middle age still had many childhood buddies who'd stayed his home. In 1934, in spite of the Depression and having to help support his father, Doug had amassed enough capital and reputation to strike out on his own to develop archery equipment full-time. So, it was time to move out of the little garage and into a little more spacious, corrugated tin structure located at 1919 and a half Fifth Avenue in Los Angeles. For the next six years, this modest building with the big archery-tackled double broadhead Easton logo was arguably the world's leading archery product development facility. By this time, Doug had hundreds of enthusiastic Southern California customers, and his tackle income and reputation grew. So did his desire to take his products to a new level. And his family grew as well with the birth of Jim Easton, James Leland Easton, in July of 1935. Doug and Mary were fully immersed in tournament archery by this period. At that time, Doug and a very expectant Mary were undertaking the tremendous task of organizing the 55th U.S. National Championship in Los Angeles. 
Three days before this massive 1935 event, Mary went into labor with baby Jim. But by all accounts, Doug stayed focused and put on a big event while tending to both the tournament and to his newly expanding family. An ability to multitask that we'll see again later. By 1940, 18 years after crafting his first wood bow, Doug was ready for the next step in building his archery tackle business. He picked a plot just down the street at 1807 Fifth Avenue, and there Doug built a new shop and custom showroom right next to a new family home next door. Now with two boys, Jim and in 1941, Robert Douglas, or Bob, the Easton family prospered. But there were dark clouds ahead, not just for the Eastons, but for all Americans on the horizon. As Doug Easton pondered his arrow problem, his mind fixated on the concept of a strong, safe metal arrow. A homogeneous material, like aluminum or steel, has several advantages over wood. Because the stiffness of a given metal structure is independent of its orientation, unlike wood, which is stiffer along the grain, the use of metal allows for control of the stiffness and weight of the arrow simply through perfect dimensional control. Stated simply, two objects of the exact same shape and dimensions made of a specific metal alloy will have identical mass and stiffness. A simple principle, but hard to do physically. The tolerances needed to ensure nearly perfect matching and the need for the metal structure to be as strong as possible yet still able to be straightened without breaking it were just a few of the challenges to overcome. Now, Doug knew that soft aluminum tubes had been tried in the 1930s as arrow shafting, but those tubes were only good for a couple of shots before bending. Thin-walled steel shafts were resilient enough, but the slightest damage, for example, one arrow slightly striking another, could cause a catastrophic failure on the next shot, with horrific results. Pouring through industrial literature and technical papers, Doug turned his intellect and natural mechanical aptitude to the issue of just how to make a viable metal shaft. It took him between 1936 and 1940 to work out the basics. Doug also developed in that time period another innovation indispensable to modern archery, the interchangeable screw-in arrow point. The keys that Doug fixated on were cold-drawing extruded aluminum tubing to smaller diameters, using a precision draw bench and heat treating the alloy for maximum strength. Now these processes were reasonably well established, but not to the degree of precision and strength that Doug wanted to achieve. For instance, draw benches at that time were chain driven and relatively inconsistent. Doug recognized the need for smooth motion and constant velocity to achieve such exacting tolerances as needed for arrows, but you couldn't do that with a chain drive draw bench. Doug picked 2000 series Alcoa aluminum for his initial attempts. He'd worked out on paper, and to a degree practically, all of the processes that would be needed to take arrows to a new level, one they'd never reached before. The fundamental keys that he hit on? Cold drawing over a mandrel and through a die for precise, and I mean precise, 50 millionths of an inch, control of wall thickness, and cold worked grain structure for greater durability. Then, thermal processing, heat treating, and cold quenching for the... Finally, he had to come up with a method to straighten the resulting shafts without breaking them. This was originally done by hand, but later with machines that Jim Easton developed, which are still a trade secret process even today. 
Lots of innovation was needed, from the lubricant needed to draw the tubes to the methods for quenching the tubes after heat treat in a deep pool of molten salt. All of this had to be painstakingly worked out by Doug. Another obstacle? Tradition. The wood shafts and every part of archery at that time was traditional, so consumers resisted the idea of metal arrows. This is not an insignificant factor, and not the first time that Doug Easton would change tradition. Doug's efforts were first rewarded and his concepts validated when Larry Hughes, a California archer, used one of the first Easton 24 SRT Alcoa-based shafts in size 1820. That's 18 64ths of an inch in diameter with a wall thickness of 20 thousandths of an inch to win the 1941 U.S. National Championship. Now, the truth is there was serious pushback from some elements of the archery establishment who saw archery as requiring only basic wood and the expensive handcrafted arrows of the time. But it turned out to be a minority view when people realized how much better aluminum arrows were and what their easy availability would mean to avid archers and beginners alike. For one thing, it would mean a lot more archers. Doug had succeeded in opening archery to change from a better product that would raise the human performance level and make the cost of entry much lower, thereby growing the sport. Suddenly, demand for the new aluminum arrow flooded Doug's Fifth Avenue shop, and it looked like archery was about to explode with the availability of affordable, super-accurate arrows for the first time ever. The approval of those arrows by the governing bodies of the sport, all of whom recognized the benefits of affordable arrows, made it a certainty, and Doug Easton was about to change forever, one of man's oldest sports with an explosion of new participants who could finally afford to participate in archery. Unfortunately, a very different type of explosion changed those plans, almost totally derailing Doug's archery business, not to mention millions of lives around the world. The shock of what happened at Pearl Harbor on December 11, 1941, brought Southern California to a standstill, and then a flurry of activity. The outbreak of the Second World War suddenly made high-strength aluminum alloy about as hard to get as gold as far as civilian use was concerned. As a strategic material for aircraft, there was none to spare for arrows or any other consumer use. Doug had now faced the prospect of having a business founded on a leisure sport at a time with no leisure, when the total focus of the public suddenly turned from ordinary life matters like archery to bigger issues, a total war footing, ineligible for direct participation in the war because of his injury, and having a family to care for, Doug and Mary turned their focus for the next several years on developing and building intricate, lightweight wood cases for the maps carried by Allied pilots in the war. Doug's woodworking background made craftsmanship of such cases elegant and simple, and Doug received many contracts during the course of the war that kept his family adequately cared for during that time. Building the cases was, in fact, a family effort. Little Jim and Little Bob recalled hours of gluing leather strips onto the wood cases. But Doug's archery development was not quite over in spite of the war. Archery enthusiasts at Lockheed, the aircraft maker, brought Doug samples of various new aluminum alloys, so Doug was able to continue advancing his techniques thanks to this support, kind of on the side. The end of the war came in 1945, so Doug and Mary once again were headed full speed into rebuilding their archery business. Doug had proven that even ordinary aluminum arrows were better than wood arrows, at least at first use. But having worked out the possibilities for making them even better through processing, 
He wouldn't be satisfied with just ordinary aluminum arrows. If he could make aluminum arrows, it would really be superior. Doug went all in and invested the then astronomical sum of $8,000 in tooling, equipment, and materials. In the summer of 1945, he completed his first precision hydraulic draw bench for drawing aluminum arrows. This was the key. The result? Easton's 24 SRTX arrow shafts. As I mentioned previously, draw benches up till then were powered by chain drive motors and didn't operate smoothly enough to produce the exact tolerances needed for arrow level precision. The chain drive would pulse and create inconsistencies in the aluminum. Doug's hydraulic draw bench provided the precision and repeatability that was needed to ensure every arrow would be exactly the same. These arrows required hours of painstaking and repeated work, drawing, heat treating, hand straightening. They started out with two-inch start stocks, so you can imagine how many draws were needed to get them down to the size of an arrow. The X in 24SRTX represented the still-secret processes that Doug used to bring the ductile aluminum to within a few percent of its theoretical maximum strength, and then straighten it to an incredible one-thousandth of an inch. Now, perhaps Doug didn't know at the time, but the 24SRTX was actually the strongest, most precise aluminum tubing ever made anywhere until that time. Even today, the trade secret drawing and heat treat processes are closely guarded secrets of the Easton family. In time, this would lead to a business expansion going far beyond archery. But now, in the late 1940s, Doug's entire output was more than spoken for. You see, returning veterans and families were hungry for leisure activities, and they flocked to archery. During the war and afterward, California had seen a population explosion of around 60% and became a hotbed of target archery activity when the war ended. By this time, Doug had put away the seasoned wood staves and draw knives and sandpaper for making bows. He was working 12 hours a day or more making nothing but aluminum arrows, while still working to improve the processes and make even better arrows. It was clear by now, with aluminum quickly eclipsing even the finest Doug Easton four-footed wood arrow sets, Doug had acquired a taste for obsoleting his own innovations. I mentioned earlier that Jim Easton, along with his brother Bob, spent some time working around the workbench on those pilot map cases. Well, young Jim Easton was 12 years old when he began formally working for his father after school every day. Jim's first job, as I mentioned, was to glue leather on the map cases, but for now, for arrows, it was to hand sand the tail end of every single 24 SRTX arrow shaft to roughen them up so the duco cement they used for fletching could properly bond to the arrows. You see, 2000 series aluminum generates its own self-protective layer of aluminum oxide, and that layer will not allow the glue to stick properly to the aluminum. As a side effect, Jim's hands were stained black at the end of every shift from the aluminum dust. As he diligently worked around the shop, Jim, and later his younger brother Bob, absorbed that work ethic set forth by Doug, one that was reflected by a small placard on Jim's desk decades later, a placard that reads, Excellence is expected. Perfection is the goal. Brother Bob has memories of being a toddler playing with the fragrant yew wood chips under his father's workbench. So you could say that both of the Easton brothers grew up with archery in their blood, and Doug set out high expectations for both boys. 
While Doug's main output from his draw benches were arrows, it was clear there were other uses for high-strength precision aluminum tubing, and one of the first of these came about as a result of the Cold War. In 1947, the government asked Doug to provide precision high-strength tubing for radiological dosimeters. Using his precision arrow-drawing processes, Doug devised cases that enabled dosimeters to be carried in a shirt pocket like a pen. Ordinarily intended for civil defense applications, these dosimeters made their way into the medical field as well. In 1948, Doug acquired quantities of a new super-strength aluminum alloy, 7075 or 7075, developed by Alcoa as an experimental alloy that would see the first military application in the development of aircraft weapon systems and later the M16 rifle. Doug had a more fundamental weapons application in mind, though. 7075 made it possible to develop arrow shafts with a third more strength than the 2000 series 24SRTX arrow shafts. But the 7075 required a whole new learning curve for nearly every single process that Doug had developed. Because the quantities were still limited, Doug continued experimenting with the new alloy. Since the 1930s, Doug's reputation for quality archery tackle and location in Los Angeles meant any time there was a film containing archery, odds were a Doug Easton bow or arrow would be involved. That led to a lot of connections and acquaintances for Doug out of Hollywood. One of these was the legendary bow hunter Howard Hill. Hill was the archer who actually shot the arrows in the 1930s Errol Flynn Robin Hood film epic. His exploits as a big game hunter were popularized in short films and radio appearances. When Hill decided to make a feature movie, Tembo, about hunting elephants in Africa with bow and arrow, he turned to Doug Eason to fabricate an arrow capable of taking down the biggest land animal in existence. Doug turned to his special 7075 material, dubbed XX75, for the special processes used, to fulfill the need for an arrow strong enough to do this. Doug himself was occasionally called on to rig special effects arrow shots in movies. As a foremost expert in shooting, his knowledge was used on several feature films. Meanwhile, Doug's sons Jim and Bob were heavily involved as competitive young archers. In 1951, the 67th U.S. NAA Championship, held at the University of California at Los Angeles, recorded 10-year-old Bob Easton as national champion in the cadet division and 16-year-old Jim Easton meddling as an intermediate division shooter. That same year, Jim began his college education at UCLA. By 1951, the archery market continued to grow. Fred Bear and his Bear Archery Company and others began repopularizing bow hunting, especially in the upper Midwest. For the first time, Doug began facing serious competition. Another company developed a cheap-to-produce fiberglass arrow using an inexpensive process. However, the limitations of this material, too heavy and inconsistent, harkened back to the days of wood, so largely consumers rejected this. This would be the only first of many challenges to the technological supremacy of Doug Easton's arrows. By 1953, Doug's company was the top arrow supplier in the world. The time was coming when he'd have to take the next step to keep up with the growth of his business. Doug incorporated the company as the eponymous Jazz D. Easton Incorporated in Los Angeles on September 18th of 1953, 31 years from when he'd carved his first U wood bow. By 1954, Jim Easton, a natural engineer like his father before him, was in his third year of engineering school at UCLA. 
Possessed with an incredible talent for physical and theoretical concepts and with a genius-level intellect, Jim had skipped two grades in primary school, graduated from high school, and entered UCLA's engineering program at the age of 16. However, Jim and his father, as is common at that age, had their share of tension. For his part, Doug wanted Jim to skip school and join the company. Jim, in turn, wanted to finish school and get experience away from his father's workbench. Jim's younger brother, Bob, would face a similar challenge later. They were certainly devoted to each other, but there was friction between the boys and Doug. In particular, Doug had a hard-edged wit. He could deliver real zingers to his sons, according to Bob, who, recalling one adolescent fight with his father, recounts a rejoinder that shows Doug's appreciation for both his own and his son's talents. As Bob relates it, I was in a shouting argument with Dad about something or other, and I'd used a line along the lines of, You think Jim and I are stupid? He looked at me, narrowed his eyes, and said, Of course I don't think you're stupid. The offspring of a racehorse isn't a plow horse. In 1955, Jim left his father's company to finish his degree at night and support himself working for Douglas Aircraft by day because Doug had basically cut him off financially applying the hard lessons of his own father's spendthrift ways and his resolution to make his own offspring earn their own way. Ironically, though, it was already in Jim's character to outwork even his workaholic father. Between 1955 and 59, Jim helped develop the DC-8 aircraft. He learned new aluminum fabrication techniques at Douglas Aircraft and contributed things he'd learned under Doug's wing, including developing a heat-brazing technique that was used to connect aluminum stiffeners to cargo doors for the jets by using the molecular properties of aluminum alloys in high-temperature media. And all the while, he did this while holding down top grades going to UCLA at night. Bob was five years younger. He worked hard at school and just as hard doing part-time jobs in his father's workshop. Bob was also a mechanical genius, but he had an artistic talent as well. It was Bob who would be the family member to try to push the business past archery arrows and precision tubing. Doug's business continued prospering at this time. Now a supplier of precision high-strength tubing for a variety of industries as well as archery, Doug continued expanding his capabilities until his little shop was bursting at the seams, so it was time for a new factory. Contiguous to Los Angeles, the San Fernando Valley city of Van Nuys was mostly orange groves and floodplain at that time. But rapidly developing with the explosion of population, mobility, and prosperity in 1950s California, Doug chose a plot of land he'd bought and set aside, he had several such plots, as the site for a custom-built factory. 15137 Califa Street was the site for this state-of-the-art 10,000-square-foot factory he built. Doug's first hire, his non-family employee, first one, was Oregon Boyer, mining engineer, and archer, Larry Belden. Now, Larry was a genuine Renaissance man. Many skills, everything from ship engineering to lumber to mushing dog sleds across the Arctic wastes of Nome, Alaska, where he'd worked as a miner. An avid hunter and fisherman, Belden was not only the first Eastern employee from outside the family, he turned out to be the longest tenured with a more than 45-year career at Easton. He and Doug became serious partners in innovation. What Larry brought to Easton was a keen intellect, an ability to instantly grasp new ideas, and a passion for perfection rivaling that of Doug. 
Larry was an expert tool and die maker, a master machinist, a gunsmith, an accomplished draftsman, a gifted mechanic, a skilled woodworker, and a fine archer in his own right. Larry complimented Doug's equal talents in these areas to greatly extend the company capabilities. Larry Belden also served a term as president of the NAA, with a deep involvement in target archery. So, with this avid archer and genius, Larry Belden joining the company, Easton began a long tradition of hiring expert users of the products to work for the company and advance the state of the art in every area the company became involved with. The Califa Street facility allowed Doug the needed space for additional draw benches to meet the ever-expanding demand for his precision tubing for non-archery applications. Things like jet engine intercoolers, control shafts, Doug's incredibly strong and precise tubing was exactly what the jet age needed, and Southern California was the world epicenter of the aeronautical technology explosion that ushered the age of world-spanning jet aircraft. Still, due to well-managed processes and very lean operation, Doug only needed four employees to keep the 10,000-square-foot facility humming along in the first year. By 1958, there were dozens of arrow shaft sizes available, so Doug and Larry created a method to identify arrows by sandblasting the size and model directly onto the surface of the arrow using a rubber mask on the shaft. That same year, the first 13-wall 24SRTX arrows were produced, making it the lightest metal arrow in the world. But still, competitors were stalking in the shadows. In 1958, a fiberglass company called Siloflex produced a series of arrows called Microflight. Another attempt at making a viable fiberglass arrow, the Microflight arrow used sheets of woven fiberglass cloth and plastic. Now, these were heavier and not as straight as the proven Eastern aluminum shafts, and they had the additional disadvantage of inconsistent mass, weight, and spine, but... With an eye towards someday obsoleting his own product, Doug took careful note of the pitfalls and the promise of composite materials for future applications. By this time, it was the late 1950s. Doug had acquired a worldwide reputation for better arrows, so it was little wonder that he and his products would acquire attention and admiration from people in places where archery is held in particularly high cultural esteem. And that is how Doug found himself in an unlikely partnership with the 15th generation headmaster of a Tokyo school of Kudo, or Japanese traditional archery, the ninth level Kudo master Hiroharu Onuma, becoming one of the first American businessmen to export in volume to post-war Japan. In our next episode of the Eastern Target Archery podcast, we will look at how these two unlikely friends changed archery around the world. I'm George Tekmachov. Thanks for joining us for this first of several episodes on the 100-year history of the Easton Company. We'll be back with a regular podcast in our next episode. We'll see you then.